We've seen many, many backslides in history, often driven by misogyny, driven by racism, right? driven by xenophobia. And the criminalization and demonization of sex work is always a part of that story. I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. Self-compassion. One of the things I find hardest to do. I'm very available to be compassionate to others, but me, nah. Meanest, hardest, most discerning critic in all the globe. It's taken lots of therapy to get me to a place where I can practice the kindness to myself that I show to others. One of my favorite mechanisms is that when I start speaking harshly to myself, I ask myself if I would speak that way to my friends. And I remind myself that I am my best friend, so we can't speak that way to ourselves. Sometimes it can be very hard to get out of that spiral, but it's a practice I'm cultivating, and I invite you to join me. We are back for part two with the incredibly magnetic Caitlin Bailey, founder of Old Pros. We dig more into her journey as a founder in this section. I hope you will love it just as much as I did. Caitlin and I are both, we both sort of believe that storytelling is the quickest way to create change in this world. And so I would love to sort of understand how you came to that being sort of your mechanism as you built the Old Pros Network to create that shift. Thank you. Yeah, I was one of those those weird history students where it's like, I feel like the more I learned about our history, the more suspect I became of the the institutions that were that trying to govern govern my life today. Right. And so I really came to this work with the conviction that if more people knew this history, it would be easier for them to see how these, you know, coercive and repressive laws were having the same kind of detrimental impact on this generation that they had on on the last you know i i reject this idea that we are you know somehow a part of an inevitable progressive march forward we've seen many many backslides in history often driven by misogyny driven by racism right driven by xenophobia and the criminalization and demonization of sex work is always a, a part of that story and so with the podcast i try to connect stories about history to the contemporary struggle for sex worker rights. And one of my main is that it doesn't matter if you yourself have ever engaged in uh, exchanging erotic services for money or something of value. Horophobia is something that holds all of us back. You know, recently eBay erased, burned, discarded reams and reams and reams of LGBTQ plus history because of its conflation with erotic content, right? And so since the passage of SESTA-FOSTA, in the midst of this moral sex panic that we're in, platforms are, you know, erasing not just sex workers, but I mean, I I remember in the in the immediate aftermath of SESTA-FOSTA, hashtag women was banned on Instagram, right? Because like, how do, how do you distinguish between 
women and pornography, right? These are these are the same. And so I I really believe if if more people knew about the American plan and the slippery slope of, you know, trying to criminalize sex workers sort of inevitably leads to reducing the freedom of movement, freedom of expression of women and gender nonconforming and LGBTQ plus and and overly policed folks. Right. Meaning, of course, immigrant and black communities like these laws are not and have never been used to go after the real predators in our community. They are used as a tool of oppression on the most marginalized. And what the podcast does so well is like, we know that we don't really learn. We learn a very specific form of history in our education system. That's not the whole picture, right? We don't really learn black history. We really don't learn about, you know, other BIPOC communities or the Native American communities and how they sort of played a part in our country and our world. Mm -hmm. And so what I love about what you do is you sort of illuminate this history that frankly, I was never taught. And so you go in to look at all these different sort of like leaders in the sex community to historical stuff. And you share this deeply sort of untold stories that frankly, as we learn about it, we realize, okay, how much part of a fabric of America and the world this is, but we've been robbed in our education system of really like having a holistic education. We tell it's like, you know, it's a very marketed white, white American history that we're taught. Yeah. And I think what distinguishes, you know, old pros from like this is this is just like as a consumer, my like favorite kind of podcasting, like you're wrong about or, you know, maintenance phase or like the, these these um, uh, sort of deep dive on reexamining figures or, or moments in history is, is just like, you know, that's my taste in in content. But our theory of change at old pros is that we identify and we activate supporters. Right. And so we find folks that are in interested in these stories that are interested in changing the story in their own community. And then we arm them with the information that they need to call in the folks that they're already in community with. Right. So if you if you sign on to the old pros newsletter, not only are you getting, you know, a, a healthy dose of sex worker history, but you're also you know in the know like an old pro about the ongoing struggle for for sex worker rights. So you're hearing about bills that are coming up. You're hearing about protests, the constant drum beat of like any human rights organization that has looked at the data with any integrity recognizes that reducing criminal penalties increases the health and safety of sex workers in their communities. Right. And like, you know, from Amnesty International to the the Freedom Network, which is the largest provider of services to trafficking victims. You know, these folks are always sort of coming up with coming out with reports and legal recommendations. And so we are a source of that information. So if you sign on to our email list or you follow us on social media, then we are giving you the information that you need to have this conversation with your mom, to have this conversation at the dinner parties that you're going to, to push back against this false narrative that has only served to increase police budgets, right? And reduce the negotiating power of marginalized folks. So one of the things I love about old pros is that the lens from which you come you come to your audience is a it's a lens of calling in which you mentioned before and i think that's really important in a divisive world to come through a place of bridging versus shaming and so what are the the principles like as a company mm-hmm. how do you enforce that culture a culture of calling in 
We believe that the idea that we should not be arresting adults for engaging in consensual adult activity has a broad ideological appeal, right? So like the Libertarian Party was the first major national party to adopt the decriminalization of sex work as a part of their national platform. The next major party to do that was the Socialist Democrats of America, right? Those are two groups of folks that don't agree on much, but do agree on not wasting taxpayer dollars on arresting people for aggressively consensual hand jobs, right? So, you know, that's something that we can that we can get behind. And I I believe and I have experienced that all kinds of folks with all different kinds of backgrounds are ready to change their mind on this issue if they hear it from someone they trust, right, through a, the prism of values that they care about, right? So whether you believe in, you know, reducing violence against women and girls, whether you believe in, you know, a broader sort of decarceration agenda and believe that like arresting people is, you know, one of the the great human rights injustices of our time, which it absolutely is, uh, you know, like you want to talk about trafficking, right? Like the number one source of violently coerced underpaid labor in this country is our own prison system. So racial justice, people on the move or or immigration, you know, LGBT rights, you know, sex workers have been a part of that history and a part of that community really since before the beginning. And so I don't care what you care about. If you tell me what you care about, I will tell you why sex worker rights matters because we are already a part of every community, every socioeconomic status, every geographic location, rural, urban, every nationality. Sex workers are already a part of your community. As a founder in general, obviously there's like tons of challenges that you go through, but I think there's a different type of challenge when you're creating systemic shift work. And I think that the load that you carry, it's a much heavier, it's a different type of weight. It's not just a business. It's a, the idea that you're really trying to activate and change the world. And there's a tax to that. How do you balance that? Like, how do you approach that? It's so funny you say this. I'm I'm working on a memoir right now and it's called I Did This to Myself on Purpose. And I think that that is that that's a, that's a big part of who I am. And it's a big part of sort of what got us here at Old Pros. Like this is not you know, it's first of all, we're a nonprofit. Right. So it's not a business, but it's certainly not an organization that came about because like I saw a gap in the market and like created a business plan and, you know, went went after this. I have been driven right by a decades long obsession with sex worker stories, uh, my own status as a, a stigmatized sex worker. And that obsession has sort of led to seeing all of these intersections and the way that sex worker rights are foundational to to women's rights, are foundational to LGBTQ plus communities rights, are foundational to immigrant and black communities and the way that this stigma and shame around sex work has led to the erosion of those rights, right? Like if we lived in a society that accepted that sex workers were contributing members of our communities and that policing the behavior of consensual adults was none of our business, then we wouldn't be seeing the backslide on Roe and access to to safe and legal abortion, right? We wouldn't see the criminalization and the demonization of gender affirming care. Right. We would never allow, you know, violent agents of the state to take people's children away. Right. For providing gender gender affirming care. Like and so I believe 
right, that changing the story about sex work creates space for a more just future for all kinds of people. And so that passion and that core belief has driven everything that we do, right? We've tried lots of things. We ran a canvas last summer. We uh, were doing old pros parties where we are asking our supporters to to host, right? Old pros representatives to facilitate like an intimate conversation around these issues sort of tailored for your community and, and your values. We produce old pro news. We've funded art projects all over the country. We've produced documentaries and music videos and art exhibits. And like we've done a lot of things all grounded in this idea that if we elevate sex worker stories, if we are able to somehow pierce through and remind people that haven't done this work, that that we that we're that we're whole people, right? That we that we have wisdom and experience and and skills to contribute, that we can pull this old thread and unravel these false ideas that really are holding all of us back. So two things. I don't think that there is a more urgent need in the world than to make people feel fully seen and heard. That is number one. I think that is the most important thing we can do currently daily, every single person to make people feel seen. So I want to touch on two things. When you sort of came out as a sex worker, was there a lot of judgment thrown at you? Like how did you sort of cope with whatever feedback you received? Sure. So um, I I don't know if you can tell, but I have a little bit of a, a contrarian and reactionary uh, personality. So I <laughs> I came out I came out as a sex worker in the aftermath of an abusive relationship. So I had done sex work um, earlier in my life, sort of coming at it from a place of curiosity. Right. Like I, I was obsessed with sex worker stories long before engaging in this work. And then again, I I came back to it to subsidize my comedy career. But before I did that, I found myself in a relationship with a man who really believed that the sex work that I had engaged in years before we met was something that I had taken from him, right? So he really bought in to this sort of like purity culture. Uh, it is, you know, my job and responsibility to sort of like control access access to your body. And it's embarrassing sort of looking back on it. It's really easy to slip into abusive relationships, especially when the cultural water you swim in reaffirms those beliefs. And so when I came out to my, you know, to my then partner um, about my history in sex work, uh, which is something that I had done before and had often been met with sort of like curiosity, sometimes repulsion. But this time I was met with violence. And so because the reason that he was, you know, hitting me and throwing me up against a wall was because I'd engaged in in sex work, it made that made it harder for me to to seek like comfort and security in my community. Right. I couldn't tell my parents because I wasn't out to them yet. I couldn't tell my roommate. I couldn't tell the other people in my life because I was still keeping this secret. And so once I was able to extradite myself from that relationship, I decided a couple of things. First, I was never going to sleep with anyone ever again who didn't already know. Right. So if like this was going to be a big red flag, big red flag problem, I was going to do it before they suffered any delusions of ownership over my body. Right. That's um, and I was going to work towards never being vulnerable in that particular way ever again. And so I began a journey 
of coming out. And I I came out through my first one woman show, Contagious. I came out in a Vice article and a couple of other articles that I, I published. And eventually I sat down with my dad. He was a Green Beret, he served for 30 years in the army, he's been to, to multiple wars. And we were able to get to a place over the course of many years where he saw that I was fighting, that I was fighting for freedom, that I was sort of fulfilling the promise of, you know, what he had been sold uh, as a soldier Um, and that that this sort of like ancient stigma was not something that he had to hold on to and it didn't need to be a barrier. Like there was nothing about what I had done or the kind of work that I'm engaged in that mandates that he's like not allowed to be proud of me. Of course, I I came to that conversation um, with a lot of of privilege and and chutzpah, you know, like I'm an only child. So, you know, my my parents choices were to, you know, like get on board with the sex worker rights thing or, or be alone for Christmas. You know, that's the, <laughs> that's the deal. Um, but, you know, it, it took a lot of self work and it took a lot of practice of like telling my story, my story to strangers, right? Like at bars and on stages uh, and through writing, it took a lot of creative expression for me to be able to stand in my own skin in front of the people that raised me and, and say with, you know, authenticity and authority of like, this is okay. And even if you can't see that now, I'm going to go with you on this journey and we're going to get there together. And now of course they like, they couldn't be prouder. Of course. Thank you for sharing that, though. That's really, I think, helpful for people, too, that A, are struggling or B, have live a life that they're afraid maybe to share with their, you know, family, because it does. It's hard to step into your authentic self when you know that, you know, your family may not see the world in the same way that you do. Um, So this it feels like old prose has been in some ways very healing, like healing work for you. That's certainly been my experience with with old prose. You know, I found a lot of, I don't know, the ki- kind of spiritual joy through the work, through the work that we do and have certainly connected to to a community that I find very healing. And it's something that I seek for for all of our content creators and also our audience. Right. You know, the folks that get these emails, our social media followers, the people that listen to our podcast. I think it's important for anyone who's ever engaged in this work or even anyone who's ever been called a whore in a derogatory way to recognize that they are part of a long legacy of really powerful, driven, entrepreneurial folks like that. You can reject um, the lies that you've been told about what engaging in this work means, right, about you or your morals or your your value to, to your family. And I think that like recognizing yourself as part of a legacy, recognizing that you are part of a, a multi-generational right crusade for freedom of movement, freedom of expression, you know, basic autonomy, human dignity. That's the prism through which you can look at your experiences in sex work. You don't have to buy in to the the cultural idea that you are that you are degraded or that this was something that that took away value. I think one of the the core false beliefs that I was raised in, you know, cuz like my, you know, my dad was grew up in the 50s in Kansas and military culture is sort of its own can of worms, but I came of age during the Bush administration uh, in the American South, just steeped 
in abstinence only education. And I remember being explicitly told by a, by a health educator, right? Like in a nurse's costume. Uh, I only say it was a costume. It wasn't sexy. She just had like no medical credentials. And so she like came to our class and she put glue on a piece of paper and then put another piece of paper over it and tore it apart. It was like, this is what happens to your body when you have sex with people. You leave pieces of yourself all over them. And there was this real narrative that like the more, you know, sexual experiences I exposed to that I was like, I don't know, letting helium out of a balloon in some way. Like I, I even remember an aunt saying to me of like, well, you know, think about it. If you go to a party, do you want to, you know, eat fruit or cheese off of a fresh platter? Or do you want to, you know, pick over the leftovers that what's been left behind? And like this idea that little boys in this country go out into the world and experience hard things and it makes them better men and that girls or women go out into the world and experience hard things and it devalues them. It degrades them. Right. It defiles them. This is the big lie. I think that that, you know, sort of underrides so much of what's wrong with this is yeah this is the big lie that that is underneath right misogyny and like sometimes it manifests itself as like benevolent sexism or like you know chauvinistic sexism but i don't know as the daughter of a soldier right as the only as the only child i feel like i came into this world and started my life with this idea that I can do hard things. I am not afraid of new experiences. I am not afraid of people. I certainly wasn't afraid of sex. The sex that I engaged with as, as a sex worker, those are not things that keep me up at night, right? But I've seen the impact that, you know, my father's multiple tours of duty have had on him, right? I grew up in a house where my father was having, you know, PTSD attacks. And in fact, my father is um, is currently dying from a rare cancer that is directly linked to his exposure to Agent Orange. And so the more I studied this and the more I got into this, I realized that like this big lie, it's the foundation, it's the foundation of everything. Like, we say that we want to eradicate prostitution when what we mean is that we want to eradicate exploitation, right? Mm -hmm. We say that we want to protect people from violence, but we enact more violence in the name of that protection. And so a lot of these false beliefs created a, a real divide, you know, sort of on a personal level between me and my dad. And then, you know, as a storyteller, as a, as a scholar, as, as, you know, somebody just very interested in these ideas, it became very clear to me that like I I was not alone. This was not unique to like the dynamic between me and my dad. This big lie is holding so many people back from from living their best life. You know, I'm not I'm not here to advocate for prostitution. It's like not for everyone. Like I, for example, was a terrible waitress, like just can't can't do it. You know, like it's not but to pretend, right, that erotic exchange or like sexual experiences is the kind of trauma of going to war. It's like, how do we unpack that? Can we begin to unpack that? Is it so important that we do? I just think with everything, 
you know, the unlearning we do as adults around the things that we've learned in a construct of society is such a big part of becoming our authentic selves. But then beyond that, I've said this all the time on the podcast that I think truth telling is the most spiritual work we can do. Debunking these lies is some of the most spiritual work we can do so we can all come to the information with facts and an understanding of the truth. And then from there, we can really work to heal and repair and move forward. But if we don't have all the information, we can't possibly bridge in the same way because we haven't been given all of the tools to have an understanding of the world in a meaningful way. And so I just want to commend you for the work that you you are doing because you are truly, truly fighting for freedom and equality, but really living in your truth. And I think stepping into your power and living your truth is like one of the most beautiful examples we could witness. And so thank you for sharing so much with me. We're going to jump into our rapid fire. Denise, can I, can I say one thing in response before we jump into rapid fire? Please. Yeah. So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for, for saying that. Um, I do want to say that like in the immediate aftermath of that abusive relationship, like before I'd come out to my parents, before I'd come out to my community, I really believed what society told me about what it would mean to come out as a sex worker. And I thought that telling my story was going to mean that I was sacrificing my social safety net, that I would be, you know, estranged from my parents, that I would, you know, be unhirable for the for the foreseeable future. And I felt compelled to do it anyway. And mm. the opposite has been true. I have been a because of my willingness to tell my own story, I have created a life and surrounded myself with a community of an incredibly supportive people. And so I just want to say that to anyone who might be listening, struggling with whether or not to tell your story. And I would never presume to know your own life. And like people, you know, I was literally beaten coming out. And so I trust your judgment on whether and under what circumstances to disclose your status as a sex worker. But I will also say that there's nothing that you could have done professionally or sexually that ever makes you unlovable or unhirable or of lesser value. A hundred percent. And oftentimes the people that are pushing you to not tell your story is because they're steeped in fear. And when you do tell your story, I find that more than not, like the truth does set you free. And that could be one person that could be a bigger audience, but you know, there's scales of that. Certainly in my experience of coming forward with my story as a founder, the amount of people that told me not to tell that story, so many, but I knew I was like, well, it doesn't really matter because I have to do this. Like I know like in my heart and my soul spiritually, I have to say this and it radically changed my life. And so I agree with you that like, I think haters going to hate, but there's a lot of people waiting with open arms and open hearts to celebrate you and champion you as a truth teller. Okay. Rapid fire. Yay. My favorite part. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Poor thing. Uh, (laughs) just, oh God. Yeah. Bless you. Calm down, sleep more. Absolutely. That's fine. That's it. That's the whole thing. (laughs) What is the last book you read? I'm I'm reading about the Everly sisters in Chicago right now. And so I'm reading about uh, sin in the Windy City, I think is is what it's called. But that's that's research for the podcast. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a minute since I've read anything other than sex worker history. So we're going to go with that. It's, you know, yeah. that's great. I, I read all the recs. I do the same. I do like a one pleasure book and then I do my research for the podcast. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> we, it's enjoyable. I'm definitely going to check that out. What are you struggling with right now? Oof. I am, great question. 
I I'm I'm honestly I'm struggling with the sort of the same the same demons that kept my my 20 year old self awake and I think it's the anxiety and impulse to do too much and so um, you know as a as a founder and as a leader in an organization when you're doing too much the organization is doing too much and so mm-hmm. you know we are really grounded in our mission of creating the conditions to change the status of sex workers in society. We're really grounded in our objective of like identifying and activating supporters on this issue, but we are still finding our way in terms of the most effective tactics, you know, really honing in on our message. And as, as a, as a fellow founder, I'm sure, you know, trying to do everything is just the most expensive and most exhausting way of doing nothing. Yeah. Not sustainable either. For sure. What is bringing you joy right now? Muay Thai boxing. Ooh! Um, yeah, absolutely. I have yeah, I've discovered um, I like combat sports. Um, I do not mind being hit in the head when I have a mouth guard. And I really like hitting other people in the head. So, or other, <laughs> other parts. You're not supposed to head hunt. Kidney shots are fine too. But yeah, I've recently, I've recently gotten into sparring and I, I really enjoy the, the culture at my, at my boxing gym. And it brings me a lot of joy. I love that. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Our boundaries are for us to hold. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that like when folks that are new to boundary work, this was certainly my experience is that like, I felt like it was my job to tell other people what my boundaries were. And then they had that information and then it was their job to, to do it. And what I have found, I see your face of like, yep, nope, that's not, (laughs) that's not how it works. It's, um, it's still all about you, you have to hold your boundaries. There's a great book called The Dance of Anger where they talk about Mm. that, how when you create boundaries, people want to pull you back into the dance. So they're going to keep pushing. So you go back to the same pattern. And Mm -hmm. when you eventually assert those boundaries and hold them steady, that they have to do choose a new dance step. You either Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's amazing and it's so true. And it's really helpful when you're talking about like, you know, family patterning or relationship patterning and how you want to shift things and setting boundaries, you know, in the beginning is so hard. It just feels like you feel guilty. You feel, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like you're, you're being too hard and not nice. And it's like, all those things are not true, but no, I love that book, but that's so, so true. It's like, you have yeah. to be the master of your boundaries. Yes, absolutely. Um, and no one else can do that work for you. No, 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 no. And that's the hard part of leadership, which I think is that it's a lonely road and you're the one that has to be the like the the mask for everybody. So it's like if your team's sad, if you're happy, mm-hmm. they're happy and you really have to show up as your you know, bigger than you. It's so much mm-hmm. bigger than you to lead a company, but not only lead a company, but lead a company that's trying to create positive change in the world. And then you hit legislation where you just have bad days and you have to figure out how to keep keep trucking. Yeah. You know, so on some days I feel like my 15 year old self would be like so proud of me and think that I am so cool. And other days where I feel like often on the same day, actually, that I'm just like <laughs> a ridiculous caricature of myself. So like I have recently gotten into a self Reiki practice and mm. crystals and tarot and altar work and like other stuff and like the comedian that lives in my head is like always rolling my eyes but I'm like no 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 I have to I have to put my feelings on this physical (laughs) altar or they're going to infect the rest of my day 
hundred percent. Yeah. Whatever works. But I think whatever it's always works. good. <laughs> I think it's always good to look at spiritual practice with a bit of humor. Because Little side I think, eye. Yeah. I, I'm always like, oh no, I did this thing and I have to tell people and I'm always like, oh yes, I saw this, my past life work, my ancestral mm-hmm. healing. <laughs> That being said, it works, but I think humor, you can understand that like not, it's not for everyone. And so the humor helps, I think, deliver the medicine. Yeah. Um, There's a couple of takeaways I want to call out for the audience or some things that I thought were really, really interesting. As part of your organization, one of the values that you guys hold is to identify and activate supporters and give them the tools to then become a bigger sort of ripple Mm -hmm. effect of the org, which I think is really important for people looking to do systemic shift work, to think about ways that like they don't have to carry the weight completely by themselves, give people the tools to sort of share that weight with you. I love this thing that you said about your prism of values. I just loved that language so much and how you call people in looking at their prism of values. I think that is such a beautiful phrase. Thank you. What Caitlin is, is a testament to living in her truth. And I think the takeaway is that we all can strive as like our North star to live in our values and live in our truth and be unapologetic about how we see the world. And I think Caitlin and old pros models that so, so extremely well. She talked a lot about creative expression to be able to stand in her skin. So the process of getting to that space, I think you had a lot of creative tools you employed. And so as people are working on this, the the place to get into their power and stand in their truth, know that there's a lot of different tools at your disposal, whether it's writing or speaking or comedy, uh, to get to a place where you can do that. And it feels like it's live, it's in your body and not just in your brain. And you talked about this work being joyfully spiritual. I think that is so awesome. If we all can live in our genius and find work that makes us feel spiritually joyful, that is the goal. And I want to remind everyone of something as we end here is that we are all a part of something bigger. We are all connected. We are all the same. And so the opportunity we have as we face these sort of really trying times is to come at everything from a place of understanding that we are connected and that the opportunity is for us to heal and bridge, not to further divide. And if we can recognize the humanity in each and every single one of us, I think we will live in the world that we want to live in. So thank you, Caitlin, for taking the time today and giving us a very generous history lesson and generous storytelling on your personal behalf. I am so grateful to you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been uh, a real honor and a pleasure to be here. So before we leave here, I just want to make sure that you guys know where to find Caitlin and all things old pros. So Caitlin, please tell us where we can find you. Yeah, of course, you can uh, sign on to our newsletter, take a look at all of our content. Um, Every episode of the Oldest Profession podcast comes with an annotated bibliography, an essay written by our incredible PhD historian, Dr. Charlene Fletcher. So like, please check out our website at oldprosonline.org. You can also choose to make a tax deductible donation if you feel called to to do that. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram across social media platforms at Old Pros Online. And yeah, there's just a, a wealth of information that we are dying to share with you. Awesome. Thank you all so much for listening. It really does mean the world. I call this the little pod that could. To continue to listen or become a subscriber, you can find Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere that you can find podcasts, you can find Do The Work. It makes a huge difference if you could review, share, and rate this podcast. 
Thank you to Wine Designs Media, Lenny Skolnick for that musical intro, Lindsay Johnson on the graphics, Olivia Christian on social. I am so grateful. I hope you find or continue living in your purpose. Thank you.